0: LegalizeFreedom. dot
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Jay Dyer, who joins us to discuss his book, Esoteric Hollywood Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. Delving into the deep, dark, and mysterious undertones hidden in blockbusters and cult classics alike, Esoteric Hollywood explores philosophy, religion, symbolism, and geopolitics and their connections to film. We probe the prevalence of cinematic propaganda and predictive programming in promoting an ignorant, apathetic, dumbed-down generation of compliant consumers concerned only with instant gratification, unable and unwilling to challenge authority or subvert the status quo. We break down some of our own personal film favourites and ask whether, in an era dominated by gaming and social media, movies are less influential on the youth of today than they were in the past. We also reveal Hollywood's covert links to the CIA, how the border between fantasy and reality continues to blur, and the history of profound truths being hidden in plain sight on the silver screen. And from the dystopian sci-fi and gritty hard-boiled thrillers prevalent in the 1970s to the airbrushed, CGI-infested aberrations of today, we examine the extent to which movie makers are, unwittingly or otherwise, laying before our very eyes a real-world future which draws closer frame by frame. Hello and welcome, Jay, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: Uh, thanks, Greg. I think we spoke a year ago and it was a really good interview and the feedback on that interview was pretty good. I think uh, between your your page and my page, we've had probably Ten or 15,000 views, which is pretty good for what
1: I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You no, know, the feedback was very good, actually, and listeners can find a link to that interview on the page for this interview, so it's all in one place. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, your book you've just put out. That's entitled Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. Before we get into that, just tell listeners a bit about yourself and your work.
0: Yeah, well, I like to write. I do a lot of uh, philosophy and film analyses. Uh, I also get into comparative religion. I do a lot on uh, geopolitics and conspiracy in general, and then some history and some literary theory, so all the above, and all my work is, of course, found at jaysanalysis.com, but I also do a podcast. I do lectures, and I do interviews, and something very similar to what you do, but uh, with a little bit different focus, and so that is now, that's what I do full-time, and so... I finally collected together, I guess, the most relevant 25 or so film analyses that I thought would be uh, would be a good book. And so the book's been out for I think three months now, and uh, like 95 percent, uh, you know, five star reviews across markets. I think I have almost 50 five star reviews now. So, so it's done really well in the first uh, three months. And it's 363 pages, it's 404 footnotes, and it's everything from Kubrick to Spielberg to... Hitchcock to 007 to really goofy campy 80s and 70s dystopian movies so it's all over the place and everybody seems to really enjoy it I had to add actually I think 50 sidebars which are just little explanatory boxes that tell you uh (laughs) who Robert Mayhew is who uh Steven Spielberg is who Dante is I was wondering when uh, the publisher was like um you need to add some sidebars for them. I'm thinking, who doesn't know who Steven Spielberg is <laughs> Like, who's never heard of Dante, but I guess uh, some people haven't so so anyway it was it was a big, long process, uh, maybe a year and a half process to put the book together, and so it's finally out and uh, so yeah, that's what I do.
1: yeah, well, it sounds like uh, you were very much like me in the sense that we, we kind of grew up on movies in many ways, and yeah. someone might say, "Well, what do you mean, who doesn't grow up on movies, but I'm not so sure these days when I talk to younger people. Um, you know there 's a lot of distractions these days I know that 's a bit of a cliche in itself, but i i 've met some kids or you know teenagers, young adults who you know play a lot of computer games, really, and they 're on social media a lot and they don 't go to the cinema watching films is you know not really something that they do. they might occasionally see one, but they 've got no real interest for them it 's really just like a candy bar or something you know say so, yeah whatever yeah. you know what i mean they do yeah. they don 't really think about what they 've seen or what they might like to see so um yeah, maybe we can address that point, but then just tell us about, uh, you know, your your childhood in movies. No,
0: well, that's a great point. I mean, I was just thinking about this, this very point this week because I did an analysis of, oh, that popular video game movie Assassin's Creed, and I don't really care for this kind of stuff, but <laughs> everybody uh, who's, uh, I guess, a millennial or younger or whatever, they, this is what they do, so... So video games in Hollywood are kind of melding into being the future, I guess, now. And it really is a, a degeneration of the arts. I, I really do think that that's true. And there's actual conspiracy evidence to suggest that. The uh, Frankfurt School so-called philosophers spoke about the advantages of degrading the arts in the West and that they could do this through various means. Uh, And what this would do would have a tremendous social engineering impact. And so we've all probably been made aware of, I don't know, maybe maybe the audience doesn't know, but there have been even mainstream reports, I think in the Telegraph or the Independent that have talked about, you know, the CIA's role in uh, engineering modern art and sort of degrading it and turning it into something that's uh, toxic in social engineering. And so it's not really about what we might think of the arts being about, you know, reflecting Beauty, the aspirations of man, higher ideals, or the, these kinds of things. Now it's kind of really, for the most part, you know, co-opted by globalist interests, the superstate, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why you have so many things in the music industry, or uh, the arts in general, or Hollywood or film, really just becoming uh, an indoctrination process, uh, and the only way that a person generally speaking, gets ahead in a lot of those fields, you know, as if they go along, if they play along with the agenda. And I do think there's a across-the-fields covert agenda that you can actually demonstrate, and this is kind of what I go into in my book, in some respects is, you know, the, the background players, uh, you know, the, the Hollywood Illuminati, we might say, who have taken over the film industry. And interestingly now, it seems like China is apparently buying off a lot of the uh, big studios, and we know that this is going to be used for geopolitical and social engineering purposes, so anyway, that's a long story but in terms of um your question about my interest in film, when I guess I grew up in the eighties like everybody else uh who probably reads my site, <laughs> it's a lot of eighties uh eighties stuff there, but you know i was I was entranced with Indiana Jones and e t and Spielberg movies and Star Wars and all the Typical stuff that a kid from the 80s likes. And so, I don't know, I just always I found the, the medium itself very fascinating, very mis- mysterious because you're combining so many different arts. You know, you've got sound, you've got sight, you've got playing with time through editing and so forth. So, I always wanted to make movies, always wanted to, to be involved in that kind of a process. But, you know, things didn't, didn't work out that way for me, so I ended up uh, studying philosophy and then... As you get older, you start to realize that you can kind of do a philosophy of anything. And this is the, the great thing about the discipline of philosophy is that there's anything that's out there in the world you could do. A, you could do a philosophy of taking a shit if you wanted to. I mean, there's a, literally a philosophy <laughs> of, of anything. You could do a philosophy of uh, humor, a philosophy of the arts, philosophy of whatever. Uh, and so that kind of allowed me, you know, through studying that in undergrad and grad school to look back at, at film in my 20s, and I just, I thought, well, I should, I should start a blog and just talk about all these different aspects of what I'm interested in, in relationship to, to film and to movies. So, that's what that's what Jay's analysis is, and then what
1: the book is. Well, certainly you could do a philosophy of taking a shit on the screen, which is what a few directors seem to have done um, over the years. <laughs>
0: that would be modern art, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get into the whole, I mean, I think everybody accepts that uh, in movies we get fed messages and propaganda mm-hmm. at different levels. I mean, it all sounds a bit conspiratorial, but as we work, work through this, we'll, we'll put some flesh on those bones. One of the earliest films, earliest film memories I have, probably because it scared the shit out of me, which is kind of comical to think back on now, was watching the original movie of The Blob. Yeah, yeah. it scared me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I remember Mum used to not let me watch films late at night, and I was around at a friend's house, and they had a different set of rules, so. I watched The Blob and I had nightmares about it that night. And I remember clearly waking up just in a terrible state and her saying, I told you not to watch those films, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's, that's probably my earliest one. But for me, um, in the era I lived in, uh, or grew up in rather, I was, I was a child in the seventies. And for me, even looking back now, it's very, I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but it's, I think it's very much a golden age of cinema in many ways. Depends on your perspective. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of junk. In the way that there is in any any decades, but things like The French Connection, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, Dirty Harry, Shaft, these are films that yeah. just live on. I never tire of them, you know. And uh, it, also, when you look at those films, you look at the heroes. Okay, Clint Eastwood's a pretty good-looking guy, but look at um, that. You know, the heroes in The French Connection or in The Taking of Pelham One Two Three. These are not leading men as you would as you would think of Hollywood now. Uh, they've all sure. got to be, they've all got to be chiseled and, and pretty boys with, you know, symmetrical faces and a full head of hair. So that's something that's definitely changed, you know. And I suppose it reflects, if you think about those movies that were set in New York, um, that was a pretty dark decade in many ways, uh, in America. So th- those are the films for me that just, when I put them on, remind me of not so much childhood. I wouldn't have been allowed to watch films like that as a kid, but, you know, certainly being a teenager, you know, those films were constantly rerun on the TV. Uh, they don't seem to be anymore, actually.
0: Yeah, that is really weird. Uh, I have noticed a lot of those similar patterns where you, you'll you see kind of things kind of thrown down the memory hole. And again, this is, is, I think, probably done intentionally in terms of the arts. Now, part of it is just the fact that, like you said, the younger generation d- doesn't even know about these things or has no interest in them. I I've, remember when I was doing um, my research assistant work uh, as an undergrad, this was about three or four years ago, I was working with a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds at the library, at the university, and um, I'm not joking, many of them had no idea what The Godfather was, they didn't know who the Beatles were, they'd never heard of Led Zeppelin, they'd never heard these things. I couldn't believe it, that you know people, even 18, 19, 20 years old, had never heard of these things. So part of it is, as you said, that sort of ignorance of just being enmeshed in very weird things like anime and... Uh, whatever else, Tumblr, anime, uh, trying to become a social justice warrior and uh, video games, I guess is what uh, what you're into if you're 18. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the decades, that is very interesting. There are, there are different flavors and feels and senses from different decades. I think that there were a lot of bright spots in the 70s, like you said, a lot of the dystopian Science fiction in the 70s was really cool, and I I include a couple of those in my book, um, like Zardoz and um, Logan's Run. Um, But then when you get to the 80s, you've kind of got the big blockbusters that really take Hollywood in a... a, It was kind of a boom period, I think, in the 80s. And then I think things sort of started tanking once the Internet came along. And so they, they switched over to Netflix and... You know, I think even the uh, Russian, um, one of the Russian ministers, talked about the fact that Netflix is actually a global social engineering program, and I think he's correct about that because the advent of the, inter- the internet, of course, it makes everything global. So you're not bound by the satellite and cable networks anymore. It can be something transmitted everywhere, and so this the so-called Western values. Uh, you know, can can now be beamed uh, into Serbia and into Turkey and you know anywhere anywhere that the uh, establishment wants to beam it. And so, I think that's the danger in that regard. But but yeah, I, I do. I talk about a lot of this kind of stuff in the book as well. I talk about the well, just the overall control of the arts. And I noticed that there were some books that, that touched on this. Uh, a couple academic books I'm thinking of that would discuss. Mm, the CIA's uh, connections to Hollywood and how they might influence this or that film. And then there's other books that would talk about it from an academic perspective, like operation Hollywood or the Pentagon would pay to have certain messages in films. And a lot of the eighties films would be uh, military recruitment films and so forth and so on. But I thought that after you read those, you, you get the impression that it's very limited in its scope. Um, but I started realizing that, well, actually, a lot of these uh, actors, especially the big A-listers and people like this, they actually oftentimes uh, do work for intelligence agencies in some capacity. Uh, and this even comes out in mainstream news. And so the more that you dig on these topics, you start to discover that there's a lot closer intimacy than most people think. And so that's that's a big part of what I write about in, in the book. And I get, like you said, I, you could call it conspiratorial, but I mean if if the facts lead you there then it doesn't matter what term you want to use, conspiratorial or not, that's just the fact of the matter.
1: Yeah, you can almost not use the word conspiracy these days, even though if you look it up in a dictionary, it's very straightforward. And yeah, you, you know, right. there's conspiracies everywhere, but of course conspiracy theory, but we all we all know the, the story behind that particular piece of propaganda. Two things that sprung to mind out of what you just said. One is like, Wow, haven't heard of Led Zeppelin but then I was like, Well I think about it, Greg, actually yeah, that is believable. I mean, I was having a conversation the other day. With, um, a girl and she's like mid twenties. And I was trying to think of something that was like another song. And I was saying, Oh, yeah, that, you know what that sounds like to me? I said, It sounds like Vienna by Ultravox. And she just looked at me and I went, You know, you know, the one with the girl running down the stairs, you know, one of the, it's a very classic video. She's like, What? Ultravox. I was like, No, no, no. Just, and to me, then I had to think, Well, of course, man, just because that seems obvious to you. You know, it's not like everyone in the world bought that record and you don't hear the record on the radio anymore. So your <laughs> point about things being memory-holed, even if it's not deliberate, it's just amazing how quickly stuff can go away if it's not put right in front of people. And there's, it's all very well to say that everything's on the internet, but that's that's in itself as part of the problem because, you know, it's almost yeah. like everything's there so you can find nothing on one level. So- no,
0: it's a, this is a great point of the, the never-ending infinite data stream uh, and how it sort of relativizes and negates truth and information actually because there's there's an infinity of information and I think it sort of destabilizes and it, it, it makes you lose your ground you become dizzied by the infinite series of facts uh, I think that the Facebook scrolling feed was done on purpose to be that way and uh, it's sort of a I call it a kind of a techno nihilism. And Because what it does is that it makes everything uh, equalized. It's a great equalizer of the Internet I'm speaking of. And then it turns, I mean, there's a lot of good. I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm just saying that this is one of the downsides. Is that it? it kind of, because it equalizes everything, it therefore degrades everything. So you can have, you know, you're scrolling through Facebook and you're seeing, on the one hand, some great piece of art that's right next to an ad for viagra you know what i mean it's like it's like everything is equalized and has has no meaning there's no um higher qualities given to some things over other things anyway uh so it may it may in the long run have that that negative effect but i don't want to be totally pessimistic i mean there's a lot of great things about the internet too but but yeah i think that the the arts are suffering tremendously and have for a long time uh, because of just the scale of the social engineering and the naivety and I guess the unwillingness on the part of people who, people who go into the arts, of course, you know, they, they tend to be very right-brained. They're not very interested in doing analytical, you know, (laughs) research on who's funding their, uh, they're where they're getting their grants from, or whatever. But you know what you what you come to discover is that much more of this stuff is controlled than than you think. I mean, we I always say that when I was writing the book, if I had been talking to myself ten years earlier, you know, and I was already interested in conspiracy topics and so forth. But if I if I knew all the stuff that I knew when I was thirty five and talking to myself when I was twenty five, if I would think I was insane because it just sounds it just sounds crazy. You are telling me that that it's that it's that uh, controlled, and it actually is, unfortunately. So, well, yeah, that's that's the scary part.
1: The last film I remember going to see at the cinema uh, that I came out of just thinking, "Oh yeah, wow," and I want to see it again immediately was uh, "Cold in July." I don't know if you saw that, but um, the thing with that is it was set in the eighties. It had an 80s soundtrack. You know what I mean? And it was kind of like they didn't <laughs> need didn't need to do that for the story. I mean, it had no hinge hinging whatsoever on the plot but they just did it and it was kind of i just thought it was interesting because if you if you'd seen that same story made in the 80s it would have looked and sounded like it did you know the guy Mm -hmm. one of the main protagonists is a guy and he's got a mullet and a mustache there's still guys in the states that look like that but you know that was like just that was contemporary you know don johnson's in it for god's sake
0: yeah i can go down the road and see those dudes yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm sure. You. I could can. probably.
0: I could go like a couple doors over, and we could get them on the call right now. If we want the mullet.
1: Yeah, let's not do that. I was say, yeah, no, I'm well, joking. The only good, good good thing about mullet is it doesn't really work on radio. You know, like uh, for all I know, you've you've had a mullet recently cut. I just don't know. I can't tell. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, if, if I, I if I had a mullet, it actually would come through on on audio. Okay, it's just that I would be it would be that uh, intense, but.
1: It would be that awesome, <laughs> would it, yeah. Oh, you mean, you're talking about mullets now. It makes me want to watch a Chuck Norris film. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Walker,
0: right. Walker, Texas Ranger.
1: Well, any, I mean, just, as long as he's got a mullet in it, I don't mind. Um, knocking out the bad guys with a mullet whip. You know, he moves your head really sharply to one side. Just and turn your head real quick. Yeah, yeah and your mullet keeps going. Um, this is not why we're here. Um, have you ever done an analysis of the deer hunter? Suddenly, I was thinking about that because that's 70s, and that's one of my favorite movies, and... I had an argument with someone not that long ago, and they just said it was pure bullshit propaganda, you know, pro-war, pro-American, anti-Asian.
0: I've seen it twice, and I've contemplated an analysis more than once, but I haven't gotten around to doing it, just because I haven't fully uh, made up my mind on the film yet, so, but I I definitely plan to, I have like a giant stack of two twos, and I get emails and messages and so forth like every day people are like why haven't you done this why haven't you done this and you know it's just i don't know it's just a matter sometimes it's weird too like the it has to be the right time and that the analysis just kind of clicks and a lot of times i've noticed that the timing was good because if i'd written on a certain film before i actually did there would have been a lot of things i didn't know that explain aspects you, you know there's something very mysterious about how you know knowledge works and synchronicity and all this kind of stuff but that i think is all true because i don't know so things just kind of coalesce like for example i did my t- uh, twin peaks analysis i think a year and a half two years ago and i had a, a whole pretty vast theory about what all was going on and uh, that was has become one of the more uh, popular analyses now and it did make it into the book and then subsequently I didn't even know this, by the way, until a couple of weeks ago. But uh, Mark Frost, the co-creator with David Lynch, wrote a book about Twin Peaks. And it's kind of a fictional expansion of the history and background of Twin Peaks. And uh, it, it confirms everything that that I wrote. So that was a, a good thumbs up for me. Like it was a, a confirmation that I had uh, the details right on solving that
1: (laughs) well i find it we talked about propaganda here and you've mentioned the caa we'll get into some of that but this is not to say that you know no matter what's going on with a film or what the intention or lack of intention behind it was not to say you can't enjoy it for what it is i I find it's just but if you're armed with a bit of foreknowledge it can it doesn't necessarily spoil your enjoyment of a film you know just because you can read different layers and levels in it if you see what I mean, I think actually it can, it can help sometimes. I mean, certainly some of the films that you've talked about, I remember watching, I mean, I'd, I'd known about Kubrick, for example, and his reputation for inserting all sorts of meaning and messages into his movies. And I actually saw, <laughs> I actually saw Eyes Wide Shut for the first time in a hotel in Iceland of all places. And it was just, huh. it's just all I could find on the TV that was in English. So I just lay in bed and watched it and I, I, I I could tell straight away, look, this thing is full of all sorts. God knows, you know, how many levels are in this thing, but I could just, <clears throat> I could, I was able to forget about that and just enjoy the story, you know. So we're not trying to destroy people's, um, illusions here. You know, you can keep your illusion if you want, but I think it adds something. It's the same with music. You know, I've done music criticism for a long time and, uh, <clears throat> because you can understand how, well, rock and pop, how that works, what it does on, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically. That doesn't destroy it. It just makes it more interesting, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree, and uh, you know, this is not to say that everything is again not everything is a Pentagon run or whatever. I think that the tendency, if you look at what's documented, is they're mainly concerned with what most people are going to see. So, a propaganda-heavy film is going to be something that is going to be a blockbuster that is going to have, you know, hundreds of millions of people possibly watching it. You know, like the Bond films; that those are so widely known and recognized for so many decades, uh, the second most popular and successful franchise in film history after Harry Potter, you know they're going to be interested in what kinds of messages are in that film. You know, more independent films or, like you said, these these dystopian-type films from the 70s like uh, Logan's Run or... Um, Omega Man or something like that. You're, you're going to find pretty pretty good messages. I would say in those kinds of films. Uh, something like David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Yeah, you know, I don't really think that there's a lot of propaganda in that. There's actually quite a bit of uh, revelation in that. And uh, but so yeah, it's not a it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not one thing. You know, it's it's just like life in general. There's a lot of different factors, a lot of different layers, a lot of complexities, and different players and different motivations and interests involved but you know when we when we're looking at these say big scale jj abrams type productions or something like that we actually have documented evidence that he worked with the cia in the creation of alias uh there's a whole phd thesis that was written on that by trisha jenkins that was turned into the book cia and hollywood so i rely on her book in a couple chapters and, and cite her several times so you know, that, that's a that's an example of something that there we can document and say that this was an actual case where, you know, J.J. Abrams was working directly with central intelligence, and it was absolutely involved in propaganda. And, and part of what Alias was was to try to recruit people for the military and or uh, intelligence work. So, you know, th- this is what, this is how this all works. I remember in the 80s, my dad joined the Navy because he watched Top Gun, in part. <laughs> Now, uh, my dad's heterosexual, so uh, it wasn't because of the weird sort of homoerotic stuff that's in uh, Top Gun. But if you go back to the 80s, the uh, Reagan had uh, allocated, if I recall, quite a bit of money to uh, Hollywood for these kinds of movies. And so there was all these, these movies back then like Iron Eagle and Little Nikita and uh, I don't know what else, uh, Top Gun, Navy SEALs. These are all just sort of loosely recruitment films. And it even gets a little more ridiculous with uh, goofy ones like uh, Space Camp, which is more basically just a two hour ab- or hour and a half advertisement for, uh, for NASA and going to Space Camp. <laughs> you think about Mac and me. Mac and me is like a ripoff of ET and it's a, you know, hour and a half advertisement for McDonald's. So in other words, you start to see these patterns that on the one hand, it's not just propaganda and social engineering. It was also had large-scale advertising. Movies become big two-hour advertisements.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, not even product placement. That's a, that's a cliched thing from the past now. Right, so. but beyond that, right? Yeah, I mean, I haven't read Starship Troopers, but certainly the movie they made, I remember people saying, oh, it's just, you know, the, the book was just propaganda, pro-military. But the, the movie certainly tipped over into... Comedy and farce—the idea that you know you might sign up after watching *Starship Troopers*—and I find a lot of more modern films, contemporary ones, that you and I might look at and go, "Yeah, this is very clear propaganda." It's just so over the top that I'm like, "Who's actually buying this?" You know, of course, you find out a lot—millions of people are—but I, I just find it—I don't know—it's desperation or what it is—but uh, they just lapsed into the point of just being absolutely ridiculous.
0: If I recall, I read somewhere that that at West Point or upper-level military, like if you're getting your PhD or something in military studies, that, that uh, they read Heinlein extensively. Mm-hmm. And that sounds plausible to me, given the fact that Love, what's in in Heinlein is kind of this, uh, tra- it's actually transhumanist kind of propaganda. I think he was in Crowley-type circles. I don't know if he was actually a Crowleyan, but he was definitely in those kinds of circles. And uh, Heinlein's uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, you have like the prediction of... The AI software that kind of comes alive and leads this libertarian revolution or something like this. So, uh, you could actually see why that would be advantageous for something like uh, West Point or Army War College or something like that because the, the whole Atlanticist Anglo American establishment philosophy is, on its face at least, this idea of so called libertarianism, right? The long march of liberty. Uh, against all of the empires and the tyrants and all this nonsense which i think is just propaganda but but it is interesting that uh, if I, I think Paul verhoven is who did starship troopers he turned it into a satire so the movie is actually kind of funny when you <laughs> when you watch it from the uh, satire perspective uh, starship troopers i'm speaking of here but but yeah all of that kind of stuff i now you know i should have i wish I had gotten to some of that stuff because it is really interesting especially if you look at Iamov and and uh, how he predicted Google as well. So you have a lot of these, like, 40s and 50s era sci-fi guys predicting things that we see today. You know, the Internet, uh, Neuromancer with uh, William Gibson. You've got, like, uh, The Matrix and this kind of stuff. So, so, yeah, definitely, I think, if there's a sequel to Esoteric Hollywood, uh, we'll probably go down that route.
1: Yeah, I remember reading uh, Fountains of Paradise by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, Mm -hmm. many many years ago now at that state well not when he wrote it when I read it the internet existed as a as a military infrastructure but I Mm -hmm. hadn't I hadn't and we had even at that point we had computers at school that were networked but Mm -hmm. it hadn't really occurred to me that this could become a global thing and I remember reading his description of this screen that the guy had in his room that brought selected news you know what he All the subjects he was interested in were all filtered and packaged for him. (laughs) And he was able to talk to other people around the world on his screen and stuff. And I remember thinking, wow, that would be so cool, wouldn't it? But I just couldn't see how it would be possible. And then probably only 10 years later, when I first got on the Internet, not my own computer, but was in 1993 at university. And the first thing I thought wasn't like, oh, cool. You know, it was like "Well, I went in. Whatever search engine there would have been at the time, God knows. I must look up and see what search engines there were in 1993. But type in, Netscape Navigator. <laughs> okay, well, I typed. I think I typed in science fiction uh, because that's something I was really interested in, and the results came mm-hmm. back. I remember thinking, "Oh my God, look at all this material. This could be such a colossal waste of time." That was my first thought about the internet. Interesting.
0: Do you want to know the first thing I? It was around that time, maybe 1995. The first thing that I searched for on Netscape Navigator.
1: What was that? KLF. <laughs> oh, wow. That was the... Um, no, I suppose that would have been several years after the, the, the White Album was out. Was it called... No, it wasn't called that. What was it called? Was it Chill Out? Or I'm trying Yeah, to... well,
0: the, the White Album was, I think, 91, and that's right. the one that had the big radio hits. But Chill Out, I think, was it 80, 87 or 88 was Chill Out. Oh, uh, okay. But that was actually some pretty weird avant-garde sort of predictive stuff, too, because um, if you read... Is it Bill Drummond? I forget whose book. One of the two KLF guys
1: wrote. It's probably Bill Drummond. He's the guy that burnt the money, isn't it?
0: Yeah, he wrote a book uh, about how you sample and loop and create a number one hit single, and it's as a joke, right? But now that is kind of like the entire music industry is that. So I see it as kind of prophetic in a way because, you know, they're they're these sort of performance artists slash chaos magic anarcho type guys and they're talking about <laughs> all this stuff from decades ago and they're implementing the Robert Anton Wilson, you know, ancients of Moo Moo type stuff into their halfway satirical, halfway joke performance art. But it's all also in a in a way kind of prophetic.
1: This is gonna really only work for a British audience, but there's a comedian here in the UK, one of the most popular and successful, called Steve Coogan, and he has a character called Alan Partridge. Who's a really, really awful, dreadful, beige, middle of the road, field TV broadcaster come radio presenter. But in one episode of his TV show, the character, Alan Partridge, is trying to get his TV job back. And so he's desperately pitching program ideas to the BBC executive. And this program, this is probably made in the late 90s. And he's just, he's just gr- clutching at straws. He hasn't got any ideas left. So he's just making things up like he's saying, uh, cooking in prison, uh, Inner city sumo, monkey tennis. He's got no ideas at all. He's just talking, just verbal diarrhea. And somebody recently did an analysis, and they looked back, and in some slightly modified form or other, pretty much all the bullshit shows that he pulled out of thin air have actually been made, it was just incredible. Uh, no, I,
0: I love Steve Coogan. He's great. Um, I know what you're talking about too. That uh, I, I've ever since I saw the uh, is it Trismegistus? what what the film that he did it was kind of an indie indie film where he's playing sort of the reincarnation of Hermes Trismegistus. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I can't think of the, the name of it. I saw it whenever it came out, like 2005, somewhere in there. But, uh, but yeah, I've liked Steve Coogan ever since. He's helped me. Uh, work, I'm working on, not literally helped me, but <laughs> uh, playing his clips has helped me uh, get my, my Michael Caine impersonation right. But
1: <laughs> Oh, right. Okay, I see. <laughs> it's just, you know, life-imitating art or life-imitating yeah. a joke. Right, you know. right. Exactly. Now, we, we've talked a bit about music that's come up, and we're, we're here to talk about movies, but I will just say that in many of the, the ways that movies function, uh, socially, culturally, you, you can say the same about music, You, as you just pointed out with the KLF and the Top Ten thing. And one, mm-hmm. one of the sidebars in your book, I noticed that you, you mentioned Dave McGowan, uh, now sadly passed on, and uh, mm-hmm. he, he was one of my guests here, and he talked about his book, uh, you know, Strange Scenes uh, from Laurel Canyon, I'm, I'm mangling the title there actually, but it's uh, it's something along. Right. It's all about Laurel Canyon in California and the the so-called hippie dream, you know, the the uh, summer of love and all that. And reading your book brought all of that back to me in many ways. I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, this is one big industry, isn't it? Really, pop culture. Yeah, in fact, uh,
0: I read Dave's book in January of last year, and then decided before. My book came out that I would actually drive out to, to Hollywood. Cause I, I, I grew up in San Diego, but I haven't been back there since I was a kid. So uh, my girlfriend and I drove out there this last summer, and we went to Laurel Canyon. And it's all true. It's all there. It's uh, As the story goes, It's the, the facility is now converted into a house. It's Jared Leto. The actor's house now, but you can still see the remnants and old signs of the uh, the Air Force stuff there. So there's you know these big signs still, sort of dusty old signs that say "property of Air Force" and stuff like that. But but yeah, it's kind of a closed off, uh, you know, private residence now. A Really really skinny road too when you drive up into the those those. Uh, hills there but the other thing that i didn't realize and i know this is kind of stupid i probably should have known this being that i've written about all this stuff but you don't realize this stuff until you go and experience it but you have to take mahalan drive to get up there (laughs) so uh you know here i've I've been watching david lynch movies and writing about this stuff for a long time and i didn't even realize that you have to drive up mahalan drive to then go up wonderland avenue and great, great titles there by the way wonderland avenue is where the laurel Canyon. Film studio is that, that you know that Dave wrote about and kind of popularized, and so yeah, that's all true. What he pointed out there was that you know hardly anybody knew that there was this secret Pentagon, deep state-run film studio that all the you know it's a-listers of the 40s and 50s had access to, Disney and Cary Grant, and Marilyn Monroe, and all these kind of people, and then you know that we don't even know exactly all of what they produced there what exactly was going on uh, we do know that the atomic bomb footage uh, was produced there uh, that is I've, I've verified that on the uh, i think on the air force website like they all have these old archives or you can go look that up uh so that's all true and it's just one more pretty big piece of evidence and in fact i i most of my book was already written before i read dave's book and learned all that, so actually I actually had to go back and kind of add some of that because I thought it was so germane to the topic that I was writing on I was like, well, this is great stuff this is pretty big info that the day is pointing out here so I had to add all that and uh and yeah his his book is indispensable in fact Amazon actually just groups our books together you know like the if you like this then also buy this buy these two together for whatever so mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think my book I mean I wouldn't say that I'm as Dave's a much, uh, I have a lot more respect, he's an older, wiser man than me, but but uh, yeah, I'm honoured to be linked there with, with Dave by Amazon, the great uh, AI Google brain there, putting us together.
1: Well, we talked about dystopian films, and particularly uh, 70s dystopian films, it really seemed to be something in the air back then, it wasn't there, you know, around the time of the oil crisis, and it was mm-hmm. start, starting to occur to people that maybe the industrial Western lifestyle wasn't sustainable. Now, that, of course, all went away in the 1980s when we had TV shows like Dallas and Dynasty and uh, Miami Vice, oh, yeah. you know, and all that, st- that stuff. But uh, one of my favourite films from back in the day uh, is Rollerball. And to me, it's a great dystopian film, well-produced. I think a really good balance between brains and brawn. That is to say, it's a good action film. There's lots of violence in it, basically, you know, like enjoyable screen... <coughs> Rough and tough kind of stuff. It's it's basically uh-huh. about a future sport, isn't it? And there's a lot of thoughtful layers. In fact, it's the the lead protagonist played by James can who's the sports star, a guy that superficially appears to have not too much going on upstairs, but he gra- <clears throat> gradually starts to think about what's being asked of him and what this game, rollerball, is all really about and its social purpose, and all of that. It's interesting in itself, but all of that <laughs> makes me think about the commonalities between the movies and also. Big screen sports you know the popular mass sports that uh, you know you guys have got baseball basketball American football you know we got soccer over here and um, uh, there are others of course and uh, these sort of uh, things that command people's attention and that that functions in a very similar way too
0: that's a great point uh yeah I, I there's a bunch of movies that have kind of made this point you you've got death race like you said you've got rollerball you've got running man, and a lot of those I do cover um Hunger Games, obviously now, which is just a repeat of all that same idea. But the more that I think about it, I think you're really onto something here because the past few weeks I've been tracking the top ten stories at Google. Um, so, because I wrote a bunch of articles and analyses, some of which would get really good rankings in Google, and then others wouldn't. So I'm trying to figure out like what what's going on here, and it must be, you know, what movies people are googling and stuff like this, and So, I've been watching the trends, which I've never really done or cared about, but every freaking day, the top 10, I'm not joking, every day, the top 10 stories, except for maybe one story, are sports. (laughs) So, I've been living in this bubble uh, of the arts and all this kind of stuff, entertainment and so forth, and... The, the whole rest of the country, and presumably the Western world, as you're talking about, all they care about is fucking sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess this should have been obvious, but what you realize that when you look at the Google Analytics, that's the only thing that people are fucking searching and Googling is, and I hate sports, by the way, but um, now I don't mind playing basketball, but I mean, I can't stand pro sports. Yes, this is why the Super Bowl, uh, which I think we've covered it the past couple of times, AJ's analysis and different different means and formats, just because it is a, a giant social engineering ritual event, uh, and this is where they interject all the the socialism, all the communism, all the various uh, isms that you want to about uh, you know getting rid of guns and all all this kind of stuff is all tied into oh you need Obamacare all this kind of stuff. Now whatever you think about those topics, I'm not trying to argue nationalized health care or any of that kind of, I'm just saying that why does the Super Bowl have to tell me all this stuff? Why does the Super Bowl have to, you know, preach transgenderism to me? Literally, by the way. Uh, you know, why do I have to watch Madonna doing these ridiculous Babylonian tributes and so forth, and Lady Gaga doing uh, human sacrifice reenactments and all this kind of nonsense? Well, because it is all the ancient tribal warfare repackaged in a... Most ridiculous fast food format (laughs) is really what it is. And once you realize that, it kind of, it kind of dispels it all. All the, all the mystique falls away and it's kind of like, I mean, most people, for example, don't want to sit and watch advertisements all day, right? I mean, you, you, you want to skip through the commercials most of the time. Uh, but what is the Super Bowl? But, and I don't just mean the, the famous commercials at the Super Bowl, which everybody thinks are really funny and cute and clever. The entire Super Bowl is just one big long advertisement. Right. I mean, that's what we were saying about a lot of these movies is that you eventually realize that this isn't artwork. This is just the whole movie is trying to sell me some bullshit. So, again, I, I know that that's probably old hat to you and a lot of the audience, but it's just really amazing when you stop and think about the scope of this, that the, everyone is really just completely entranced with these stupid sports rituals. And, you know, so it's no wonder that... that. Uh, the whole civilization is going to shit. <laughs> I
1: mean, oh, I've had uh, just, I've had, you know, verbal jousting matches with, um, people about mainstream, mainline sports, particularly big events, uh, you know, global events or national events, about them mm-hmm. being, being like the, the Colosseum, you know, in Rome. Yeah. Uh, bre- exactly. bread and circuses for the masses, um, a conduit for some kind of aggression, if not violence. And that's what, mm-hmm. that's what the sports, Called Rollerball in the film of the same name was all about, you know, it was a way to channel your nationalism and your aggression. Someone else would get up there, so you know, so you didn't have to, sort of thing. But I've had people, nah, nah, don't be stupid. It's not. It was totally different situation in Rome. You know, people were actually dying out there. And then every time, well, that's where they're going to take it, by the way. Well, I do wonder. I really do wonder because one of the things that happens during Rollerball, this already violent sports. Spoiler alert, people. Okay, spoiler alert. Towards the end of the film. Uh, the rules get more and more relaxed and because the game hasn't gone the way that the people behind it wanted it to go, they say, okay, no rules. That's the last round of the game. No rules. And um I do wonder, you know, what what led you down that um has that been a gradual thing or was there kind of a, a light bulb moment when you thought about the future of um of sport along those lines? Well I
0: was just noticing and I, I'm embarrassed to say, well I actually did I, I did one podcast on Hunger Games. Um and I haven't gotten around to a lot of the... In fact, I wanted to do maybe one master article on all of these, you know, like Old Boy and... Or not Old Boy, um, or whatever the, uh, the predecessor to Hunger Games is, the, the Asian film It escapes me at the moment. But, but, yeah, Death Race needs to be done. Um, rollerball needs to be done. There's a whole bunch of these. And what you notice is that Running Man... Uh, I, I actually think reality TV was a preparation, not just for the mass surveillance state, but also to take us to that kind of stuff. Literally. Uh, I th- and in fact, there's this story going around, I assume it's true, that in Russia, right now, they're they're starting up this new reality show that is something like that. It's like Survivor, where there's going to supposedly not be rules. Now, that could be all fiction, and it could be just hype, because uh, what a lot of these reality shows do is they will have writers, and they'll give Concoct these scenes; they're not actual, uh, you know, organic uh, improv. Type. Well, I guess you could say they're improv and that they're you know people are creating the drama uh, and hyping it up. But uh, no, now that could be what's going on. But what I think is that whatever this uh, new Survivor series is going to be in Russia is is supposed to be uh, w- uh, the next step beyond Survivor or the next step beyond uh, those kinds of shows where. It's uh, no holes barred, and you know there's no rules, and you can do whatever. And I think there have been shows where they've been dropping people out in the wilderness naked, see how long you can survive. This kind of stuff. I, I really, honestly, truly think that all of this is moving us to to the uh, total gladiatorial Running Man type scenario. Absolutely. And now you think, well, all no, that'll never happen. That's crazy. Actually, there are articles and books coming out now about. Uh, that cannibalism is actually just a natural practice uh now this is in tandem with all the zombie craze and the zombie shows and walking dead and all this kind of stuff and all the zombie movies and i'm telling you that's what you're gonna have (laughs) i will not be surprised in 20 years when there is giant global you know cannibal race or something like where you have to like, drive your car and ram into people and you get points and you got to eat them or some shit like that i don't know but but that's where we're going
1: well a couple of things about that i mean it's, it's kind of like drug addiction in a way the sort of the, in terms of escalation and the question is mm-hmm. like you know if people are saying now jay yeah i agree with you they're going to ramp things up but there'll be a point beyond which it cannot go well mm-hmm. i think it does function a bit like drugs you know you're, you're chasing that same buzz you're chasing that hit and you've got to do more and do more to get it and as things become normalized which is something you get into in the book and something we'll come back to again with regard to for example child abuse these things get normalized and it doesn't take the majority of people on the planet to agree with something or to believe something for it to kind of become the new normal and when you take that step it's very difficult to go back you know never mind rolling rolling things back at what point would would you say enough is enough because then what you've got a situation where well if we don't make it Someone else will, you know, there's that whole argument about these things. And the other comical thing about these Lord of the Flies type scenarios that you get uh, with oh. these, these sort of game shows, survivor things, is you know that the fact that you're watching this happening, there's a bunch of guys, a camera, and there's a boom mic, you know, with a little furry thing on it, and they're all, there's a, and there's, <laughs> there's a director, you all these guys are stood around. Now, something like Big Brother, you've got a camera, apparently cameras in the rooms, and <laughs> there's no one operating them, they're remote. and of course, they're being monitored, but there isn't anyone mm-hmm. in the room. But right. it, as we know, it's the Big Brother house, you know what I mean? It's, it's an artificial con- you know, control environment. Yes. So in that sense, anybody can step in a, a, at any time, can't they, and say enough's enough, and that's what was supposed to happen in The Running Man, for example, you know?
0: Yes. Well, yeah, no, that normalization uh, is the brutalization of the mass psyche. And I just did an analysis of uh, Clockwork Orange and that's what I realized was going on this time around, because I've seen the film many times, and of course, a lot of times you, you don't notice stuff until, you know, maybe 10 years later when you watched it for the fifth time or something. But I noticed that Alex's character uh, is, when he's undergoing the Ludovico process of uh, being desensitized, or excuse me, being uh, entrained to, to vomit, you know, whenever he sees certain imagery, he, he's, he's being brutalized. Right so he's being forced to watch the worst stuff which puts him into a catatonic state. <laughs> that is the process and so uh and I I, I link that presentation in the film. I, I didn't do an analysis of the novel this is just the, the Kubrick version but I link that to to MK Ultra because uh I I firmly believe that the, the whole Ultimate goal of culture was actually mass consciousness. I don't think that they cared so much about creating some mind control assassin. Wh- who cares about that when you just hire somebody to to be an assassin? Why do you need to, Why do you need mind control assassins? Um, so, but but I think those kinds of studies were valuable for what they would tell you at the macro level. So if you do a whole bunch of studies on individuals and traumatizing them and you know creating altars or whatever then what you the the real value of that research from the social engineering aspect uh is for the mass audience and so i think that all this stuff the the theater of cruelty as it's called the brutalization of the mass psyche this is uh ultimately just to you know to to create the uh the omegas uh you know, what uh, Huxley talks about in Brave New World, that sort of lowest class uh, of the groupings, right, where the, the, the drone people out there, the, the slugs.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah, never the alpha male you're talking about, the omega male.
0: <laughs> well, it, you know, it's funny because in Brave New World, uh, which Huxley says in the introduction to the novel, that this is the the final stage of all the revolutions from the French Revolution. Well, actually, he says the scientific revolution, French Revolution, Industrial Revolution. He says all those revolutions were leading to the final stage, and he says Brave New World is that final stage. And what's funny is that you think that, oh, uh, this was all to create you know the great democracy, the great equal society, and then you realize that in Huxley's world, <laughs> it's not equal at all. You have rigid class structures of the alphas, the betas, right, uh, the omegas and so forth, and so the, the lowest slug class that <laughs> is just kind of these uh, goblin-type creatures, uh, you know, they're kind of the, the factory worker, janitor types, right, and they don't have any, they have like a really low IQ, they can't do anything substantial in terms of just basically pushing buttons and sweeping the floor, but what's interesting is that every one of those sectors of that society has you know, propaganda that's targeted to that sector. So even if you're a, quote, alpha, you're they're all still processed into the global social order.
1: Yeah, it's like in the Time Machine with H.G. Wells. I know he was certainly an, an insider in these terms, mm-hmm. albeit before the age of uh, of uh, the cinema. Um, what was in the Time Machine? You've got the the Eloy and the... Um, Morlocks, yeah. And, uh, Morlocks and the Eloy, that was right. Yeah, and the thing about... Um, the societies, you know, like, is this, the caste system that you end up with in these societies, is it the, the, the slugs, as you memorably call them, that, that tends to be the biggest class, I suppose, as you might expect. You know, the elites are so-called, you know, by almost by definition are going to be the smallest. Well, this is
0: the base of the pyramid. The base of the pyramid is the biggest part.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that's the same with communism, wasn't it? Communism, the great level. Absolutely, Except yes. in communist Russia or anywhere else for that, I mean, look at North Korea now, for God's sake, but communist Russia... You've still got a load of guys living in mansions, eating beluga caviar and, and drinking stolichnaya, And, you know, you and I are out there, you know, drinking stuff made from potatoes. Um, victory gin and, victory, Jen,
0: and we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're hammering the rocks in half for yeah, no reason. Exactly, no.
1: but it's all right because we're all in it together, except we're not. Uh, you mentioned the Hunger Games there and uh, you referred back to The Running Man. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a film I'd recommend. um, I think the British Film Institute brought this out on DVD. That they're they're quite good at putting out movies that just make no commercial sense to put out, but you know they then they charge you like fifty bucks for a DVD, but that's fine because you can't get them anywhere else. And the film's called *Punishment Park*. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, no, I, I think I'm struggling to remember the director's name. I think it might be Peter Watkins or something like that. Now, if if people look that up and it's not him, sorry. But the film's called *Punishment Park*, and he also did a film called *The War Game* that was actually banned in the UK for many years because they it was considered to wow. be it was made before *Threads*, and it was considered to be too realistic a depiction of nuclear war for people to be able to see it. And in his film *Punishment Park*, it's uh, criminals. Are basically taken out into the middle of the desert. When I say desert, I don't mean like Sahara. I mean like, you know, Mojave or something like that, you know, like American, um, setting. And they're basically cut loose. And that's their one chance. And then there's, uh, I don't remember the name of the people who go after them, but they're basically hunted. Um, Yes. But in theory, in theory, they've got a chance to survive. And this, the film was made in the 60s, I think.
0: Huh. Wow, well, no, I had not heard of that, but it does remind me. We we've been seeing this trend in movies lately of this kind of a plot. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, there was that not that great film, goofy one with uh, like Gary Busey and Ice uh, lo- uh Lone Survivor. But that's the plot. He's like a crook, and he's caught, and uh, he's bought by some sort of you know elites, and they go to some island, and then it's like. Start running, because <laughs> we're coming. Uh, and it's they—they paid to hunt people. And so you've heard these whispers of this kind of stuff going on. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't go on. I mean, this is kind of you know the Eli Roth plot of uh, Hostel and Hostel Two, and um, you no, know, well they're eating people there. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. uh There's another now. Uh, Roth says he's—I don't know if this is true or not—but he claims that he. Heard about these stories of this going on in uh, like Malaysia or Indonesia or somewhere. So this is where he got the the idea for this film. Now, I wouldn't be surprised, given all the other stuff we've heard about the so-called elite. Um, but there was another, Oh, uh, there was a British film, I thought it was pretty brutal. I had a hard time watching it, but uh, or it, may have been, it may have been a Scottish film, but it's called Kill List. Have you seen that?
1: I haven't, but I have heard of it. Yeah, it was a, talked about a great deal.
0: Yeah, this is kind of in the same vein too, where you've got these sort of elites that are hiring hitmen, and, and uh the hitman—I want—I want to go spoil it—but he's being inducted into a kind of secret society, and uh, <laughs> the induction process is not uh, not ha- not a pretty thing. I'll put it that way. So we do see this trend popping up in film quite a bit too.
1: Did you hear the rumors about Dick Cheney and uh, this hunting humans?
0: Uh, yeah, I have heard this rumor, but I don't know. You know, again, there's so many different, um, kind of whispers and rumors like this. You know, so who knows what, what the truth is, but I don't know. Yeah. Exactly.
1: But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, we're not, we're not accusing Dick Cheney of anything here, by the way. It's just, uh, it's just something that was doing the rounds a few years ago. Right. And, uh, interestingly, I kind of, <laughs> my, my first go-to belief for that was like, uh, yeah, I, I could, I could see that, you know, it kind of seemed plausible, you know, <laughs> which is kind of disturbing in itself. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Death Race 2000, and interestingly, that's just been remade. Right. Uh, it actually looks like it might be quite a, uh, you know, quite a faithful, sort of well-intentioned remake. Uh, possibly partly because it wasn't a big movie. Ever back in the day, anyway. That the original actually, right. the original actually stars David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone of all people. Probably a film. Yep. Here. Uh, Stallone, I'd imagine, would rather not. He probably hasn't got that on his CV. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it on he? Yeah. <laughs> the film itself is it's been remade, and that reminds me actually of a phenomenon that we've been seeing it for a long time now. But when I hear about movies being remade, I kind of hold my head in my hands in despair, not because they're necessarily going to do a bad job of it, though almost invariably they do. But just because, yeah. come on, guys, is that it? Is that all you got? And it seems like, you know, if you implied that there was a lot of intelligence or at least thought behind this process, you would say, well, yeah, they're just taking something that was popular anyway. They're just going to redo it. And the gamble is, you know, 99% chance it'll be popular again. But I don't even think it's that well thought out on some levels. And remaking things... Is kind of be- I- then it occurs to me as well that, and I found this actually with Death Race Two Thousand. I was talking to some people about it, some younger people once again, and a generation in culture can. I-, I-, I often like to say it's about ten years. There'd be a lot of people who don't know the original films, even with with well known <clears throat> films. You know, films that you yes. like. I can think of. Well, man, that was a blockbuster back in the day. You know, and they just seem to have no shame whatsoever about doing a watered down, grey, apathetic vanilla mm-hmm. just rehash of it and just being completely lazy you know
0: yeah I mean on the one hand the the remakes are done solely because they feel like it's a good investment and they won't lose money because all the people who you know I mean they have this all actuaried out and they know all the markets and the niches and oh if we remake Say by the Bell we can get you know XYZ 10 million people to come watch it and that'll generate XYZ amount of money and all this nonsense, but uh, I, I wonder too. Like you're saying, maybe there is also a deeper aspect to where they think anything that might be positive or redeemable in the older versions of these things can be actually destroyed <laughs> by remaking them into some big CGI vomit disaster. Uh, <laughs> that's an. <issue. laughs> so, I mean, so, I mean, even though it might make money, you know, like you said, who's going to go see the original? Now that you know the the younger generations are going to be watching these uh, these uh, these rehashes, but I mean this has been going on in, in entertainment for a long time, as I know you're aware and we're all aware to where you just get uh, copies of copies of copies, and you know the 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 thirty <laughs> fifth instantiation of uh, somebody trying to be I don't know Jerry Lewis or or the Beatles or something like that is just it's just Awful, you know what I mean. So you know, maybe it's uh maybe it's part of the wrecking ball phenomenon, or maybe it's just the uh, inherent nature of the beast that when when the government and uh, money controls the arts, you know, what else can you expect?
1: Well, thinking about remakes and how they change over time, a good example for me and a lot of people will be familiar with the movie I Am Legend. Uh, with Will Smith starring in that. And it's, you know, basically a zombie movie at the end of the day. That's based <laughs> on the, the book of the same title by Richard Matheson called I Am Legend, which is a very good read, by the way. And if you read the book, you won't be surprised that there's a lot more going on. It's much more sophisticated than <clears> you would otherwise think. And then Last Man on Earth, I think was the first movie version of that with Vincent Price. Yes. And the, and that's a black and white film. And that's what I'd call pretty low on action, pretty high on thoughtfulness. And very much faithful to the book in the sense it's very much about how this guy feels, believing that he is the last man on Earth, the last human. And Mm -hmm. it really emphasizes, again, what's in the book, which is that towards the end of the book, the protagonist realizes that actually the time for humans has just been and gone. And that actually Mm -hmm. what's happened to the world and what's happened to the human race, he believes to be a disaster. But he realizes that he's the only person, the only human left alive. So he's the only person that thinks that. And the creatures who have, are coming after him, creatures of the night, one of them, the leader of their group, basically says this much to him in a speech, you know, outside his window. He says, "You've had your time. It's ours now." You know, and what you get from the book and from the original film is like these people. What about their point of view? We think it's all bad because we're so human centric. But the Earth will now. just have different inhabitants that's all it is you know it's natural in a way then you fast forward to the remake in the 70s that you mentioned earlier the omega man starring charlton heston compared (laughs) compared to the original film it looks pretty dumb pretty big on action charlton heston people think of him i was quite surprised to discover how erudite how intelligent charlton heston was i know He's got his haters, you know, because of the whole um uh, n r a thing. You see what I mean? But he's kind of the epitome of macho cinema star all his era. So compared to the Vincent Price film, this looks like pretty dumbed down. But looking back at it now, that sounds actually seems really switched on, and some of the messages I mentioned from the original film and the book still come through. But then you get to the Will Smith film. And I, I found that kind of entertaining, but very unsatisfactory in many ways, because not only had they watered down a lot of the aspects in the book, they basically got a happy ending. And the, the book does not have, from the point of view of humanity, does not have a happy ending. But they just had to put it in there. And that's something I always used to enjoy about John Carpenter. He wasn't afraid to have a really bleak ending. Hmm. You know, like, oh, fuck, and then just roll titles. You know? <laughs> and it seems like we can't do that now.
0: From my cold dead hands. Oh, very good, very good. That's my Charlton. What do you think?
1: Is it sound right? Yeah. Well, you've got nothing to compare it to now. That's pretty good. That's, I, heard, I heard Charlton Heston on the radio reading Shakespeare from memory. So he wasn't reading it. So reciting Shakespeare from memory. Great big screeds yeah. of it he just had yeah. down, you know, and um, the whole interview with him, I was very impressed with him. And I'm not taking any position on guns here. I'm just saying I was impressed with him as a man, you know. But, yeah, uh, he,
0: he, is a, he was known to be a very uh, impressive guy. Um, I've heard a lot of those stories too.
1: But yeah, two two things there. One is yeah. how, how the remakes seem incapable. You know, that has to be kind of dumbed down. But also how right. people accept that as kind of like, you know, you, you couldn't put, you couldn't remake Last Man on Earth and make it true to the book and have it be a mass blockbuster like um, I Am Legend with Will Smith. It just wouldn't work.
0: Right. Well, so because you, you have these, you have a test audience. Exactly. So you bring in the people, and you have the different endings, and you test which one does best with the audiences, and then it's determined based on who what's going to sell the tickets, and you know who's going to go say, oh, you got to go see this has happy ending, and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it's a great point about John Carpenter. I, I've been working my way through an analysis of all the John Carpenter movies. I think I've got about four or five of them done so far. But that is a great pattern there that, uh, yeah, he doesn't always leave you with a happy ending because that's not necessarily reality. And, uh, you know, it's not, that's not to say that film and fictional presentations always have to present reality. But, but yeah, I mean, this is just another example of consumerism and the market dictating and, and determining where the arts must go. And then on top of that is the dictating and determining on the basis of you know, the social engineers and technocrats, and I think that the best way to explain what you're talking about is that scene I think I included in the book, I mentioned it many times, is the the scene again in Brave New World where you have Mustafa Mond, who's the world's social controller, explaining to John the Savage and some of the other rebels why it is that the global government has to control uh, the arts and sciences. And he says we can't have anybody learning metaphysics and we can't have anybody learning true science and studying the arts he says because that would uh undermine our whole system and it's very interesting to me that those are the the areas that he's worried about it's the arts and metaphysics and true science those are the two areas that the world social controller in the novel says have to absolutely be censored and controlled uh, because those are the real the real areas where you could have uh, a breakdown of the existing control structure. Uh, and so that would be my answer as to why they have to continually dumb it down because you can't have good art or the arts or real aesthetics and this kind of stuff because it would lead to the collapse of the existing system. I mean, this is what they say, right?
1: Carpenter's a great example of a filmmaker that almost doesn't exist anymore. You know, the true auteur. Um, yes. You know, whose whole philosophy, his whole fibre of his being, goes into his films, good or bad. You know, you can watch all John Carpenter's films and see see the same things coming up again and again. Even when right. he, even when he obviously pays homage to his heroes. You know, like his uh, what's the name of the guy who directed all the westerns um, that Carpenter worships, and uh, Carpenter's based quite some of his films, including his adaptation of the of Who Goes There, which came out under the banner of The Thing. Is kind of mm-hmm. got, got a lot of... Howard, Howard Hawks, that's the guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, apparently Carpenter's very much uh, influenced by him. And then you've got another one of my favourites, David Cronenberg. Yeah. Different types of films. Well, some similarity, I suppose, sci-fi horror in the early days. But to me, it's interesting if you look at those guys, they had brushes with mainstream success. And probably Carpenter's, one of his most mainstream films is probably Big Trouble in Little China. I think it was the last movie he made with a big studio. And... You look at Mm -hmm. David Cronenberg had a brush with success, as mainstream success with The Fly. I think Big Trouble in Little China and The Fly might even both have been 1986. I'm not sure exactly, but around that... They were. Yeah, yeah, they were. Well, there you go. And I just think it's interesting. You look at those films now, how layered they are and how expansive and expressive and, and just things that we don't think of those now as... I mean, again, imagine screening either one of those movies now to... An audience of slugs along the line that you mentioned, I, I just think I don't, I'm not sure they'd be able to cope with them, They're, you know, there's just too much going on, you know, even, even though both films can work superficially, you know
0: Well, funny you mentioned that because I've been rewatching watching Videodrome uh, that's in the stack to do too, and that is another example of what we're talking about right, the, the brutalization process of the masses that we were getting at earlier with all the gladiatorial type films um, That's what Cronenberg is saying. He's saying that this whole machine is designed and here to do that very thing. I mean, that's the whole point of that movie. (laughs) Or, I mean, there's other points to the movie too, but, you know, the the videodrome is this entity that you, that enters you and becomes a mental virus and recreates you. Right. In this kind of tumor sense. And this is what happens, you know, to the, the James Woods uh, character in the film. So I'm glad you mentioned David Cronenberg. But uh, but yes, the there's all kinds of stuff going on in movies like Big Trouble in Little China, which I, I did do an analysis of that, too. And I mean, you've got him talking about the like Asian gangs and the organ trade and sex trafficking that's that's in big trouble in little china <laughs> this ridiculous film mm. this partly satirical but uh who even recalls that that's what's going on in that film but it is so i wonder if you know there's i i argue that there's a whole lot going on in in uh, john carpenter movies that i think most of the time where a lot of people are oblivious to and you're absolutely right they would there's no way that those films would test with audiences today um but I want to say that In the Mouth of Madness was a commercial success too. And I think that was a big studio. Because, uh, that's the completion of the Apocalypse Trilogy. So you have The Thing and you have, uh, Prince of Darkness and then you have In the Mouth of Madness, which are supposed to be, uh, John Carpenter's uh, Apocalypse Trilogy.
1: Yeah, I had, I tend to forget about that film because for many years, I saw it a long time ago and really didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. And I, I think I wrote it off in my mind without going back to it. So I was having a discussion recently, because I think it was on TV or something, and a couple of friends who are heavily into movies were saying, oh, it's great, it's great, you know, and I said, oh, I just remember it being really boring. But um, I, did, I rewatched
0: I, it, and I, I didn't like it when it came out, and I rewatched it, and uh, I, I think it's good now. I think it does fit well in the, you know, the loosely titled Apocalypse Trilogy. I bet you'd like it if you went back and watched it, because it's definitely one of those ones that ends with a, you know, we're all fucked kind of scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I do need to rewatch that. Uh, you, you would have been if you'd been in town here a few weeks ago. You'd have been a happy bunny because uh, the local cinema here started out life as a purely art house cinema, and uh, all they ever used to do was show double bills of horror and sci-fi. It was super cool. <laughs> and uh, but since being bought out and made a commercial cinema, so it's, it's a much in a much better building now with with proper facilities. But anyway, as a nod to their art house past, every now and again, they, they show cult films or films that you just mm. don't see anymore or, or films that, they, that are popular, like The Exorcist, for example, they'll put that on the big screen because a lot of people have never seen films like that on the big screen. I mean, they had the omen on
0: the on, screen, right? Yeah. They,
1: they had the omen on the big screen every week. And I know that film the other week, sorry. And they had, I know that film back to front, but it was just great to see it. In the big screen, you know, like at a hundred hundred watts blasting out of volume at you. And uh, anyway, the point is, they had video drum on the other week, and mm. I'm such a fan of seeing films on the big screen because I saw stuff in that film I'd never actually noticed before, you right. know, uh, just because it was it was displayed so large. One other thing before I forget is that um, I've seen little tiny little books devoted to the uh, an analysis of individual movies. There's a whole series of them. I can't remember what the series is called, and I saw one devoted to the thing but there is a book that might interest you if you haven't seen it and it's called order in the universe the films of john carpenter and mm. i read it back in the in the early 90s um so it's been out for a while but if you haven't seen it that's probably something you might want to it's not a very long book you might want to cast your eye with that
0: oh definitely yeah, i'll definitely get that that's a great a great uh recommendation there
1: okay jay well we're going to do this as a two-part interview so we're going to round off there for today. We'll be back with part two very shortly. Um, people will find these parts linked together on the same website page, so it's all going to be in one place. Before we go, however, today we've been talking about many things, but all orientated around your new book, which is called Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults and Symbols in Film. You've got your website. Share that with people. The book's widely available. I also know you're working on a script for a TV show, so just put all of that out there and anything else you'd like to
0: yeah, so the book is uh, Esoteric Hollywood, as you said, and uh, the best place to get that would be at my website. Uh, I do ship outside the U.S. as well as inside the U.S. So there's a little bit more, but uh, you, you can help the author out by getting it directly from the author, and uh, I, I do do signed copies. Um, we don't make a whole lot, you know, when, when people get it from Amazon. So uh, please get the, the book from me, and uh, there's a tab there at the site where you can get it. And uh, I also do uh, lectures and interviews and so forth, uh, which you can subscribe to my site there to support me as well. And you mentioned the um, TV show. Uh, Jay Wiedner and I are working on, I think we've got 17 episodes laid out so far of a show that will uh, run on Gaia. It will be video TV set and all, Uh, and we will be analyzing film uh, basically in the in the type of format that you see and jay's analysis uh in written form will actually be in just conversational video form so hopefully i'll be able to be ridiculous and do impersonations and all that kind of stuff uh, on top of uh, kind of a siskel and ebert uh, style format with me and jay in a set and then you know just kind of going to the clips and, and discussing the imagery and the symbolism and the deeper meaning so uh, all that's been passed and it's all green lit so that should all be uh, filmed in april uh, so uh, definitely look for that i think it, i think it's going to be a really good really good show so that i think that that covers everything with uh with jay's analysis and you mentioned too a point i had i wanted to get to and we'll get to this maybe when we do the part two of this uh, you said this is our time when you were referring to the creatures and the end of man and that's funny because uh, right now I'm typing up an analysis of Westworld, and that is essentially the plot of Westworld. Obviously, of course, there's an old Michael Crichton book and film, but if you're familiar with the plot or if you saw the HBO series, which is very popular, that's kind of how it, it leaves off. It's like the AI bots are basically saying, uh, you know, man is done. You've had your time. And this is, of course, the, you know, the transhumanist uh, technocrat message So that this is the future, the bots and so forth. So that's what uh, that's what I'm typing up now is that analysis. So maybe in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, we can we can discuss that type of stuff. If you if you've seen that show, I don't know if you have. Maybe you haven't.
1: I've seen the original movie of Westworld. Yeah. And of course, there's Future World, the sequel film. I haven't seen the TV right. series, partly due to my resistance to remakes. But Michael Crichton, don't even get started on that. I mean, very switched on guy. In fact, no, we will get started next time. We'll talk a bit about Michael Crichton and all the other stuff we didn't get to today. Uh, So until then, Jay, thanks so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg.